Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to James chapter 4. We'll be in verses 13 through 17 today. We're going to be reading, uh, we'll start by reading our context, giving us a little lead in. I'll start in verse 6, we'll read through verse 17, we'll pray, and we'll get going. Verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are missed that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray together. God, we're in complete dependence on you today. Well, the truth is we want to be. Behind each of our hearts, we have several self-reliant thoughts that we don't even know about sometimes, God that we default to oftentimes, God. And what we need is you to break through our hardened, stony hearts and be completely given over to love for you and obedience. Jesus, we need you to do that work in our hearts, so we ask you to come and preach yourself to us through the text here today, through my own words, that Jesus Christ would be praised and that we would learn to be more like you so that your name would be made great throughout the earth. We thank you for your love and ask your time today uh, in, in, in our midst to be that that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I want to show you two pictures. Um, this is Humpback Rocks. Uh, maybe some of you have been there. It's just off the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is beautiful. Uh, it's an ancient outcropping of these huge rocks from this rolling green and blue, uh, almost like a carpet over these mountains around it. Uh, It's quite stunning. It's really an amazing sight. If you hike up to these rocks, uh, you'll see the beauty of our Creator and kind of be wowed with your smallness and the power and the grandeur of this sight. Uh, Take a look at this picture right here. This is Crabtree Falls. Um, This is also similar, like about about three hours away towards Charlottesville for us. Uh, It's the tallest set of falls on the East Coast. I don't know if you knew that, in our backyard. Very uh, 
majestic. There's about five major cascades that tumble down the edge of a cliff. It's really amazing. You should go see it. It's wonderful. Um, and then I'd like you to do this. Take a little closer of a look for a moment, if I can. Maybe not. Okay. This is someone else there in the picture. I don't know if you can see it there. This is that picture. But then if you go in, in that's Zach and Lexi right there, taking this beautiful picture in the bottom of this nice waterfall. Oh, isn't that so nice? Uh, and then let me go back to this other picture and show you that uh, if you didn't see here, there are, yes, if we zoom in there, you can see five souls right there on the edge of those rocks. This is me and uh, most of my family. Kristen is like on the other side of the chasm taking this shot. Um, and technically speaking, if you were to look at this, this picture, it's not a good picture. Reason being that the subjects are, are barely visible. You can't really tell if they're like falling off the cliff. Ah! or if they need help, or if they're enjoying, like that they made it up this way with four children. That's wonderful, like that they just made it, you know. You, you can't really tell because the subject is so far away. It's not a very good picture. Um, and technically speaking, that, that's right. Usually you're trying to capture a detailed picture of your subject, right? And trying to, the, the landscape is an interesting thing in the background and showing the beauty and all that stuff and making it all coordinate. Uh, however, I would like to say that it's all a matter of perspective. I, I would agree that, you know, that this is, this is not a great picture if you're trying to capture those people as the subjects. But I'd argue that the person taking this picture might have gotten it right, actually. We might have a different emphasis than maybe what you would normally do in taking pictures, which is to try to bring your subject, the people, the most important things to the front. When you take a look at this picture, you can't help but feel small. I mean, in this other picture, you can't even see Zach and Lexi. You're overwhelmed by this incredible sight to see this water cascading over this beautiful landscape. Uh, when you look at them, again, you, you start to feel small, like really small in the, in the landscape, in the, in the giant world that God has given to us. Uh, you start to realize that your lifespan is temporal and, and small and your impact is just not very big and maybe it's fleeting. Uh, in our passage today, James is going to give us the same feel. He's going to help us see ourselves in the proper context. He is going to explain another facet of wisdom, helping us see who we actually are in the grand scheme of things. James is going to give us then some perspective. Uh, now, his point is much larger than, of course, just showing us how small we are. Today, James is expanding this idea of wisdom. He will show us that true wisdom is preoccupied by one thing consistently over and over again. True wisdom is constantly occupied, preoccupied by Jesus Christ. That that is the constant thing that overcomes everything else in our life. That that's the central focus. He's going to tell us this stuff and show us in, in ways that maybe what you think about your own life is not so great. This is a story then of verse 13 through 17 is a story about very normal people, very normal and usual people. Uh, probably someone of some means, they're able to do commerce, they're going to and, and trading, um, make some sort of a profit and engage in that, very much like many of us. Uh, there's no glaring sin to anyone who first reads verse 13. You don't see any wicked desires, or maybe it's in Greek, it's behind the text and you can't really see it, and that's my job to bring it forward for you and say, oh, what does the Greek say? Is it, is it mean like they're trying to do something evil here? No, it's they're trying to go to the city and make a profit and do the right thing. <clears throat> Sounds to me like good stewardship. <laughs> 
He plans, right, this person. He diligently works. He executes his plan. He even counts his cost. And he realizes that there will be some sort of reward at the end. And he says, so I should do this business and I should bring profit. He's, he's making good business decisions. I would say, again, this is probably wide steward, wise stewardship. So our question is, James, it sounds like you're calling this guy out. He's like, come now, you who say this thing. So if you're calling them out, why? What's the big deal? Is there, a, is there a problem? There's something that we're not seeing here. James is going to tell us what the problem is. Uh, but first, as, right as soon as we get to verse 14, he's going to pull off for a minute, minute to give us an underlying truth to help bolster his argument here. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and vanishes. Verse 14 kind of stops us for a moment and helps us to take account of life and look at the future and ask the right questions. He's making a point. He says, you just gave me your year-long plan for the coming fiscal year of how you're going to do well and what you're going to plan to do, which is great. Let's go back to square one for a moment. Let me ask you, do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm not talking about a year. Do you know what happens tomorrow? Can we all agree that this first statement then is true, that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do any of us really know what will happen tomorrow? Now, if we'd like to answer, no, of course we don't. But we all think, yes, I know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to get up at about, my, my alarm's going to go off about 5.45. I'm going to hit snooze twice. I'm going to be able to get out of bed, yeah, 6.10, something like that. Get coffee started. I'll get in the shower. I'm going to go ahead on and, and make my breakfast, get dressed. I'll sit down and read my Bible for a little bit as I get ready. I'll make my morning commute. I'll get into work and deal with difficult people. I'll have my lunch. I'll have my coffee break after lunch. I'll eventually get back home. I'll have dinner with my, with my family, probably have good discussion, maybe run the kids to practice. Eventually, as the night winds down, either I'm going to read something or maybe I'll watch like one episode on Netflix of something, and then I'll eventually get ready for bed and go to sleep. I know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. It happens the same way every day. Chris, you don't know, but I know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. Um, I understand. A few years ago, on a very normal, planned out day, planned out day, Jordan Hirons got a call from his mom and dad. And there was a spot on his mom's pancreas, which eventually would take her life. That was not planned for the next day. That was not part of what they were planning on doing the next couple months of their life. On a very normal, routine Friday morning, uh, we sat down as elders uh, with John and Nathan, two newly affirmed elders, and told them that Stacy was stepping down as an elder. <sighs> yeah, welcome to being an elder. Was not ready for that today. Um, just recently, uh, Dan Carlson got a call from his parents that his mom uh, most likely has thyroid cancer. He wasn't planning on that. He didn't know that was going to happen tomorrow. We, we have this illusion that we know what's going to happen tomorrow because we're used to it. You don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. You have no way of knowing. It could rock your world. You may think you know, but I, I, the Bible even tells us, you don't know. <laughs> James is right. You don't know what's going to happen. But then he goes on. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Can you tell me of your own greatness? Can you show me of your indelible mark on this world, kind of like humpback rocks, like permanence and looking good and like everyone comes to see this thing? No. What is your life? 
Back in chapter 1, we learned what our life was. Remember this? We were like the flower of the grass that when the sun, just the sun shines on it, it withers up and it dries up and it goes away. It's done. He asks the same question here. What is your life? You are a mist. You're like a little patch of fog (laughs) that appears and then it's gone, completely gone. In the grand scheme of things, your life is nothing like humpback rocks. Your life is like a mist that appears seemingly out of nowhere and disappears. You and I are very small, fragile creatures. The illustration here is nothing to do with importance. That's not what we're talking about today. We know that we are made in the image of God and therefore are of very high value. That's not what we're talking about today. He cares deeply for us. If he cares about when two birds fall and they, they cost a, like a penny and he knows when they fall, he certainly cares deeply for you. However, I don't want us to miss this reality here that, that James is talking about. Our identity, our importance, or our legacy is wrapped up in the one who made us and saved us. That's our true identity. What can you show for yourself? What can you do on this world? Anything to note that the world of how great of a person you are, of your lasting significance and permanence. Our co-image bearers have tried to do this throughout the history of the world. Most notably today, I would like you to think about Genesis 11. If you remember, they said this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Like, let's leave a legacy of our greatness and our accomplishments for the rest of the world to see. My life is meaningful. In the next verse, the writer says this, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. <laughs> like, do you catch the irony there? Like, like they were building this, this tower all the way into the city of God, into the realm of heaven, and it never went into heaven. In fact, God had to leave his heaven to come down to see the city and the tower. It never even made it, not even close. He looked on this sandcastle of pride and silliness and said, this is a joke, right? I'm the almighty creator. I made all the stuff that you used to make your stuff. Like, you have nothing. Like, that's not very impressive, guys. What can you really show for yourself here? We are then small fragile, temporal creatures, a mist that appears and then disappears. Now look at verse 15 for a minute. He says this, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 15 is the heart of the text today. We've got to understand this. Now this is kind of where we get our our lucky rabbit's foot, our, our secret phrase of the day, kind of our magic words that help us live our whole life right before God. All you have to do is just kind of say that if the Lord wills before everything you do and then everything is right, right? Like as long as you say that before you pray, like if the Lord wills, give me that BMX bike. Yeah, yeah. Like, like as long as you put that in front of it, you're in good shape. Or I realize I'm going to step on some toes. If you just say Jesus, everything's going to be okay. If you say that over and over and over again, we're going to be all right. You're going to conjure up a pagan deity called Jesus somehow. And he's going to have his blessing on your life. You see what I'm getting here? that we use it possibly as a magic spell? That's not what's going on here. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a total reorientation of the way that we think about our lives. I, I don't, again, I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but if this was what discipleship and sanctification was all about, he would have just told us, just say this, this thing, 
in front of everything you do and, and just recite it over and over again and you'll be good. Like you don't have to read the rest of the New Testament. In fact, you don't have to need to read the rest of the Bible. You're fine. Just say these things over and over again and you're good. We already know from Jesus that that's the, the words that you say are coming out of a heart, hopefully, unless it's just nothingness. And what Jesus is most concerned about is actually your heart changing and yielding itself in submission to the king, King Jesus. So this idea that if we just say these things over and over again, it will save us and get everything right is baloney. It's not right. So let me back up for a minute. What are we saying then? If that's not the right thing, it's not supposed to be some sort of magic words to make sure everything goes right, what is James actually saying? He starts out by saying this, instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, if we, we will live or we will do this or that. James says, instead, see that word he uses there to kind of turn, he stops what we're doing and says, you shouldn't be doing this, instead you should do something over here different, saying a different set of words. That is pointing back to something. James is so pastoral, he's bringing us and saying, let me correct you, that's not right. You're not doing the right thing here when you say these things. Instead, this is the direction you ought to go. He's giving us new priorities, showing us what it should be like for a Christian. Again, he's not just giving us a little phrase to use over and over again. Instead, he's showing us the type of stuff that should be coming out of a heart yielded to him, if the Lord wills. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. James gives us a phrase that highlights totally different things than what we saw in verse 13 at the beginning of the passage. In verse 13, we saw none of this. We don't have a parallel for this idea if you look back at verse 13. It's, it's completely missing. So what's this idea here? The foundation of verse 15, if the Lord wills, is the foundation of a Christian's life. Like everything that we do. This is the foundational statement. The supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Uh, truth be told, this phrase ought to be preached and teached, or taught, sorry, and internal, it rhymed though, it was nice, uh, and internalized and obeyed. This is really, really important us to get this. When you look back at this time period, this is not a phrase that is um, unusual. A lot of these nations understood that they were not alone in the world. There was some sort of divine person out there doing something. They weren't sure what it was, but they were okay with saying, we're not really sure what's happening here, but if God wills, you know, we'll go do this or that. James takes that and uses it for his own purposes, though. He knows this is a common phrase that's used. What he does is change the word, not just any old God. He says the Lord. This is different from anyone else. They know exactly who he's talking about. The Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And so when he says this, it totally takes us away from like this whole idea of like fatalism and some sort of deity out there. If God wills, we'll do these things. Instead, it grounds it concretely in Jesus Christ himself. So if Jesus Christ, the Lord, wills, or if he wants, or if he desires a certain path, we will be able to do this only in him. Whatever he wants, that's our first priority. It's not necessarily complicated. James is telling us that our speech and therefore our heart ought to have as its first priority King Jesus. Before our hearts and thoughts are swept up into our own desires and passions, stuff we've already learned about, and let me go say one, one thing further, not just bad things like passions and desires for ourselves. How about our own ideas, plans, organization, project plans? Good things, all good things. Before we get into any of that, our first consideration is this. Jesus 
what would you have me do? What is your will? What is your desire? What do you want? That's the most important thing to me. James already told us at the beginning of the book, if we lacked wisdom, what should we do? Ask. Ask him for it. So how do we get this? What, you know, if I'm trying to figure out what Jesus most desires, why don't we start with what he's already told us to do, which is to ask our God and Father. Ask him, Jesus, what do you desire? Is this not the wisdom that we should be asking for? This is most certainly prayer. But I want to make one more point here. It's also a posture. We're not just talking about a prayer in and of itself. We're talking about the way that we live our life, a direction, the actions in our life, what it looks like. When I say posture, I mean everything about my life is headed in this direction. Not what I want, but rather what the king, Jesus himself, wants. Far from being a quick recitation of words, this is something that causes us to seek God, causes us to try to know what he wants. Uh, We realize also that then finding him and finding his will is like the greatest treasure in the world. It is it far it far exceeds worthly uh, earthly wealth or things that are around us that we think are so good fame or fortune or renown these things fall apart compared to knowing Jesus Christ and His will for our life. There are a few of us that are so arrogant that we just think we kind of got it figured out. <laughs> we know the best way, and then the rest of us just aren't as vocal <laughs> or we're not as confident in that statement but we think the same things. James says this, though. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. I I, I love this plan. (laughs) If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If we we will live and do this or that. It's not really a plan at all. This is not like how to do a project plan for your business. Go go back and like, okay, we want to sit around and say these things. That's not the point here at all. What he is trying to help us do is look at our life big picture and think about all of it being oriented to Christ and Christ alone. He starts out with simple, dependent life. We will live. If the Lord wills, okay, let's give us some plans, some things we ought to do. We will live. <laughs> like the first guy in verse 13, he didn't even like acknowledge that that was an issue. He totally assumed that he could live in and of himself. But this guy says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Like that's the first thing on the list understanding that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the whole universe together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And if that's true, he can't even hold his life together. So he starts here, the first thing on his agenda is, again, we will, according to your will, you know, if the Lord wills, we will live. Then the second thing, <laughs> uh, do this or that. I love that. It's pretty ambiguous as to what he's talking about. Like it's and I would say it's purposefully ambiguous. What he's trying to do is show us some kind of plan here, but not really. He's not giving us any sort of direction as to what specifically we ought to do. Again, this is not a plan. Neither is an example, like I said before, for some sort of workflow strategy. There is a deliberate, purposeful ambiguity. He is giving us wide range, very wide range of categories for which the Lord has control over. Everything, this or that, go ahead, name it. I'm talking about that the Lord is the Lord over all of that. And on, while we're on this subject, Jesus will not settle for your Sundays. Jesus will not settle for 15 minutes of 
Bible reading in the morning, and then you get to have the rest of the day whatever you want to do. He will not settle for a, a night given over to community group once in a while. He desires, he wills, he wants every square inch of your life. Do you remember that he bought you? Do you remember that he didn't buy parts of you, but he bought you for his own with his precious blood? Guys, he owns us. Not Sunday morning, maybe some Sunday nights where we do core seminar, and some mornings when we get together and we kind of meet for coffee and talk about the Bible together. No, no, no. Every square inch of your life is his. He owns it. It is not yours. It is his and his alone. So uh, this is not you putting on a plan, getting it together, and bringing it to him and saying, okay, I've got this plan. Now, would you bless it? Or just your will? Like, I've got my things together. He's not like a boss that says, hey, I want to have some ideas here. Make sure you bring the stuff to me. And when you get it here, I'll need to have some good projections about where it will lead us. What are the benefits? Give me the analysis here. And then bring it to me and I'll bless it or I'll say no. Look at his first thing that he tells us to do. If the Lord wills. That's his primary idea here. That we would start with the first things first. Asking, what is the Lord's will? What do you desire, God? It's, it's again, very good, but... Um, it's, it's not helping us to think if we just bring our plan to him and then he can bless it and then I can go on with my life. In and of itself, that's just completely selfish. It's self-serving. It doesn't give honor to God. It just claims him as some sort of like editor or blesser of things and, oh, here's the money to do so. He's the originator and the one who holds us together and the completer. And he wants every different part of our workflow. <laughs> he wants all of it and he deserves it all. Um, I'll say one other thing here. There's a book called The One Thing. You, if, if you're in business, you may have read it. It's, it's, a, it's a helpful little book. It talks about doing one thing well, and it helps you do the rest of the things within your schedule. This is the one thing for Christians. Trust and know and love God alone. You want to know Him, His will. Everything else flows out of that. Not like coming to church. Okay, that's going to be my one thing. If I just keep on coming to church, I'm in good shape. No, 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 no. You must know and love and trust him. This is your one thing, as it were. The rest of the world tries to like figure that out and they all have little different things of what their one thing is going to be. You don't have a choice. <laughs> if, if you think you have a choice, you're completely wrong. You don't have a choice. Jesus Christ is your one thing. Him, he is your priority and he sets your agenda. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In other words, what you said back in verse 13, right, this plan of this business plan, it completely disregards Jesus. It not, not only is it not like, like understood well, he's not even there. He's not even part of your, your situation, your thoughts on this at all. He treats it more of like that Sunday equation. Like, yes, I come and worship Jesus on Sunday morning and maybe in my community group, uh, but not really the rest of my life. That's, that's kind of minded to deal with what I, should, what I think I should do about it. Jesus has the right to every single part of your life. He is, again, and if you don't think this is true, then you are boasting in arrogance. That's a weird jump, right? Like, what do you mean? Chris, what, like, how is that, like organizing, looking at my calendar well, planning out the next year, how is that boasting in my arrogance if I'm doing it this way? What do you mean? Let me tell you, my daughter, Evelyn, she's two years old, 
Um, she loves, I mean, she loves to be in charge uh, and, and, and to do things on her own, on her own. If I allowed her to, probably this morning, she would have driven us all to church. She would have dropped us off at the front door and said, hey, get your coffee, go to the bathroom, and make sure you're in time, inside on time. This is who she is. She is made that way, right? Uh, she is very much Little Miss Independence. I want to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter if I'm helping her get dressed or if I'm, like, buckling her seatbelt or letting her ride, like, a 10-speed bike around the cul-de-sac by herself. She wants to do it. She looks me in the eye and says, no, Daddy, I will do it. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is like a two-year-old. I'm 34. Like, I don't know where she gets this. But uh, her, maybe her mother. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, many times, that is not true. Man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> this is, yeah, right, second service. You got it. Uh, sometimes we have to look at Evie in the eyes and say, no, honey, you can't do it. Like, I'm sorry to tell you, but I know we have a flat tire, and I know you'd like to, but you can't even pick up the wrench to turn the lug nut, to take off the wheel, to do you, you, you can't. I'm sorry. I love you. And again, she goes, Daddy, I want to do it. You know, it, she does not understand it. And I know this is a dumb analogy, but think about this for a minute. There's a truth here that you gotta, we got to understand. When we take our plans into our own hands, and we want to do the things that we want to do. We are like arrogant children saying, no, Daddy, I will do it. Uh, no, Daddy, it is, I am better at this than you are. No, Daddy, I, I can pick up this mountain. I don't need your help. Do, do, do you see your arrogance? Do you see that when we take things in our own hands, we deny the one who has pleasure in making our life right and being the one in full control? Do you see that our independence is really just foolish pride and it's evil? James tells us that this kind of living is boasting in arrogance and that this type of boasting is evil. So the question is, okay, what type of boasting isn't evil? It seems like it all be bad. Well, how about 1 Corinthians one thirty one, where it says, boast in Jesus Christ, my Lord? Or how about Hebrews 3, 6, where we are to boast in hope centered in Jesus Christ. Or how about the beginning of James? We already talked about this. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that we are to boast in humiliation or boast in exaltation. If you remember back there, that centers on one thing or one person. All these things, if you saw the common thread through them, is that boasting is only found properly in Jesus Christ. He is our only boast that's right. Everything else is evil. There's no other boasting that makes any sense. It's all about Jesus. Now, look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, if you're like me, you're reading along here, you're like, was that like an add-on verse? Or what's going on? It seems like a little out of place. Um, very, seems very easy to rip out of context. And like, why did James put this here? Uh, now, it is a great, great verse to encourage us to constantly be doing good works, for sure. But that's not all. James has just shown us the sin of self-reliance when we depend only on ourselves and we don't care about God's uh, perspective. Now we come to this spot and we realize that what he's trying to show us is that he shows us that this is not just a wise saying. It's not just a good idea. 
it's not just like the best practices that you should probably first ask what the Lord wills. He's showing us that not acknowledging God and this self-reliance is not just foolishness, it's sin. He's already called it evil. And now he calls self-reliance sin. If we don't understand this, this is not just a good idea. We are not supposed to look normal like verse 13. Our lives should look like we are dominated by Jesus Christ. Both in what we do, the way that we speak, the way that we handle ourselves around others. And I don't mean perfect. I mean confessors and repenters who rely on Jesus Christ and him alone to be their righteousness. I'm not talking about being a bunch of moralistic, really high up, you know, nose up in the air good people. I'm talking about those who have been conquered by the word, Jesus Christ, and that now we humble ourselves like we should before the cross. And that's what we're to look at, to look like, excuse me. Any Christian who acts normal like the world does is in sin. Brothers and sisters, it's time to ask then the question, is your posture submitted to Christ? I'm talking about your whole life. I'm not talking about just your prayers. I'm not talking about just your plan for the next year even as you sit down with your, your spouse and plan out the next week or month or year. I'm talking about every part of you. I'm talking about your thoughts, your time, your money, the way that you prepare your kids for the future, your interactions day in, day out, who you are. Has it been conquered by Jesus Christ? Or is Jesus kind of an add-on to what you are doing? James shows us that to do it that way is nothing but sin and evil. Listen, I'm all about men and women taking responsibility and being more uh, capable and doing good things, but at the end of the day, the idea of self-reliance has a problem right from the beginning. It's impossible. Like I said before, you can never be self-reliant. He is the one that holds the universe together by the word of his power. Who do we think we are? We are not normal people going out about our days in the delusion that we know what tomorrow brings. As Christians, we know the true end, that Jesus wins. We don't know all the in-between. We don't. So let's just be honest about it and realize that it's under his control. All things are in our sovereign creator's hands, in the control of Jesus. And if that's true, it changes everything about us. It changes the way that we think the way that we speak to one another, the way that we make choices, the things that we want. It's all in his wheelhouse to deal with. And we ought to then say, Jesus, what do you want? That's what I want to know. What do you want? Now, some of you are rightly asking this next question. I hear you, Chris. Thank you. Like, I, I know I'm supposed to be asking that, but I have not heard anything from the Spirit speaking back to me. This is what I want you to do. You need to go out and do this thing. You need to make this appointment on your schedule. There's a reason for that. That, that. That's not how we are telling you that you ought to go about this. The Scriptures doesn't say that we're to do that. Instead, it gives us two concrete ways for us to search us out. I'll give you two, the ones that the Bible tells us. Number one, we already covered it in the beginning of James. If you lack the understanding of what Jesus wants and wills, which all of us do, pray. Humbly pray, expectantly waiting for his answer. That goes right along with number two. Read the Bible. It tells us of him and therefore all the things that he loves and the things that he hates. 
It tells us who he is. It helps us understand then what we are to be doing. If you don't know what you're supposed to do or what Jesus wants, read the Bible. It tells us all about who he is. That is how we might know possibly what Jesus wants and wills. And after that, remember what he says, do this or that. (laughs) There's no specific thing that every single person has to do. God has made each of you different for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. But he does want every square inch of your life. And so, primarily, we begin by saying, Lord, what is it that you will? Our lives ought to then look like those who pray and wait, those who read the Bible, and we want to know his priorities. But I'll give you one more thing here. What we do not want is this to become a formula or like the magic potion that gets us to somehow pleasing God. Okay, I'm supposed to read my Bible, I'm supposed to pray, I should be in good shape then, you know, God must be pleased. How do we fight day in, day out, for genuine spirituality, like our hearts actually to love and want to know God. Like, I don't know if you guys struggle with this or not, but the man in Mark 9 is my boy. Like, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm constantly struggling with a sincere heart because I'm wicked. I know that to be true, and I know that's true of you as well. So how do you actually love and know God? I can only say we must humbly ask him to do that work in us. It is only his grace. And so the same thing, we pray and ask him, God, make me sincere. I believe, but help my unbelief. I I know I'm wicked. Would you replace these affections for myself with affections for you and for your will that I might know and love you and then I would live and do this or that so that you might be honored and praised. Guys, we, we need him. <laughs> we need his direction. But I'm going to transition here. We need something else. We need to be fed. We need to actually have the power in us. Because by an, in and of ourselves, we have no power to do so. We are rendered without the Spirit of Christ. We are rendered useless. Today, we are joining together in the Lord's communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table. In a few moments, We're going to approach the tables together and take. Last month, I reminded us that it is part of our duty then in this to remember the sacrifice of Christ. We highlighted this. I want us to look somewhere else today. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Paul says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood? in the body of Christ. Today we recognize our great need for Jesus and and we need to partake of the bread of life or this living water. But the table goes one step further. It's the broken bread for us. It is the, the wine that has been poured out. What we're talking about is a commemoration and now a participation in the blood of Jesus Christ as he was sacrificed on the cross. This is a wonderful, sober, but glorious time for us. We remember and we partake. And as we do so, we recognize that this is grace to us in the fact that we are given Christ in his spirit. This is a wonderful event for us. It's a tactile way for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We actually taste it with our mouths. It reminds us then of actually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It is then a way for us to enjoy and walk this way together.
in a moment, this is what's going to happen. I'll give you a little bit of instruction. Uh, we're going to go to the back. I, I would ask those, if, if you're a believer here and you're not a member of Cornerstone, you're welcome to join with us in this table. If you are not a believer, please, or you're not a Christian, do not, do not partake. This is not for you. This will do you no good. Again, this isn't some sort of magic potion. If you take this, the insides of you will turn gold. That's not what's happening here. This is a sacred ceremony for us as we remember and proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so as we do so, if you're not a believer, please, no one's going to think you're weird, but please don't partake. But if you are, in a moment, this is what I'd ask you to do. I'm going to pray. Uh, after I'm done praying, the, the musicians will come up here and we will partake together as well. And each of you will get up. I'll call you to go around to the outside edges. There's a blue table in the back there and there. And the men there will serve you. You will therefore receive that in remembrance of Jesus Christ and his body and his blood poured out for you. While we do this, uh, there will be about five or six people that will go do it together. Um, the men will lead you through this. After you're done, come on and sit back down. The musicians will play lightly until most of us are back together and then we'll sing a final song of praise together. But don't forget, in the communion, we are partaking or participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We remember that we are now spiritually fed through this activity together. And that is God's grace to us. So remember and partake together. Let's pray. God, we come to you asking for help in our infirmities, our sickness of heart, our lack of trust in you, our self-reliance. When we are pressed, we often turn to ourselves. When we're not pressed, we often turn to ourselves. Would you help us to feel the weight of the cross? What you have done is effectual, and Lord, what you have done has rescued us from sin. I pray that you would help us to see any hint of wrong in our hearts, any desire that's evil that we cherish, anything that we delight in that you don't delight in. I pray that you would forgive us of these things and you would remind us to find our sufficiency in you and you alone. Lord, deliver us from every care and make us happy and holy people in Christ. Help us then to walk a separated life with firm and brave step and, and wrestle successfully against weakness, knowing that you are our strength. I pray that you teach us to praise and magnify you with the music of, of hearts that want to obey. Uh, Lord, I pray that our praise and our speech would be a, a, a perfume or a sweet savor to you, God. Give us power to live as your children in all of our actions, and I pray that we would exercise what you call sonship by you conquering us. I pray that you'd preserve us from the, the intoxicating effects of this world, prosperity, power, renown. I pray that you'd sober us in glad joy in you and you alone. God, we pray that as we partake in this table, you would lift Jesus Christ high. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.